Hello there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Using the broadest definition of the term, fish farming has been taking place in Britain for centuries, since the first medieval monks began filling ponds with fish to grow on and have available for eating on Fridays. So in that sense, it isn't a new concept. That said, true fish farming as practised today has a much wider remit encompassing everything from the moment of conception right through to either the table or stocking out. But within the current definition, there are the two separate categories of flow-through and recirculation fish farming, which for the most part conveniently sits very nicely with the two subcategories of freshwater rod and line fishing here in the UK, these being game and coarse. Invariably, farm salmonid species are incubated, hatched and reared in running water, usually abstracted from an adjacent watercourse or borehole of suitable quality. Cyprinids, on the other hand, which are the main farm coarse fish species, are bred in enclosed loop systems, isolated not only from the outside world, but usually from other identical systems within the same hatchery unit. Each of these approaches have things both to commend them and potentially to give cause for concern. It appears there is no all-singing, all-dancing, single cross-discipline option available. Now I, personally, have never worked either with salmonids nor flow-through systems, though I have frequently visited salmonid hatcheries. My experiences are all with enclosed recirculation systems. But my boss at the time, Rod Taylor, who was going to explain the flow-through side of things to us later, has a wealth of experience from both sides of the divide as they were practised throughout the 1980s to late 1990s, where he helped lay the foundation stone for the history of how coarse fish farming came to the UK. So let's start by putting some flesh onto the bones by having you give us a verbal guided tour through the workings of the particular flow-through system you managed, culminating in the advantages and disadvantages of this particular operational approach. The actuary were built in the early 1900s. It was a stone-built building, one of the earliest in the country. Um, it was a tin twistle on the Lancashire-Derbyshire border. Obviously it had to be secure, which it was, after the initial break-ins for the first 15 years. The water came down the hill, so that it was obviously subject to leaves and blockages, different water quality and the occasional pollution when various animals have fell in and got drowned, blockage of screens. The water were very acidic. It was filtered through limestone in a filter system in the actual incubation tank that was working on an upward um, direction and then overflowing into the trough system, which the, um, the fry had eventually going there when, um, when they've been hatched out. So this would be a deep-bodied tank fed by pipe flowing water entering at the bottom on one side, containing stacked shelves of limestone chips of filtration and some degree of pH balance, with a final shelf at the top holding the egg trays and the water exiting the tank via a high-level overflow into a long tray to collect the fry after they wash through after hatching. Approximately 2 foot 6 high, probably holding about 40 gallons coming into the bottom and going out at the top. There was trays set in to hold the limestone, basically to stabilise the pH of the system and also acting as a filter, which could be then drained off. And the eggs were immersed on the uppermost shelf? Correct. Yeah, they were right at the top. The temperatures were around about 8, between 8 and 9, which were around about the 40-day mark. 
Now my understanding is that in contrast to a coarse fish farm, which we'll come to later, where the eggs are kept constantly on the move, salmonid eggs require fresh oxygenated water gently flowing over them and must be kept very still. Very, very still. The dust is siphoned off that settles out of the water each morning without trying to touch any of the eggs until the eggs eye up. And then once they get active, you can be a little bit rougher with them. And obviously, as a setup name implies, water is flowing constantly through. Constantly, it never stops. If it does stop, the eggs would deoxygenate. So are there any clear advantages to the flow-through hatchery over a closed-loop recirculation system? Yeah, because what you're trying to do is, is wash all your, your problems away. Another major difference is how you obtain, keep and prepare the parent broodstock. Well, as far as salmon go, if you were incubating salmon, the salmon will have come from the river. They've been caught up by bailiffs, fishery staff. They're kept in tanks. Um, they're checked every couple of days for... Um, waiting for the brood fish to become mature. They're in separate tanks. The cocks are in one tank and the ends are in another tank. Just out of interest, what's the procedure for sea trout? Virtually identical for sea trout as what you do for salmon. Because at the end of the day, a sea trout is only a brown trout that migrates, probably due to it's going to get starved if it doesn't do. Although you've worked with both salmon and sea trout, Tin Twistle was exclusively a trout rearing facility working with a mix of both rainbows and browns. Rainbow trout, obviously, were originally imported, and with a few exceptions, can't breed naturally in the wild here in the UK. So how were the broodstock fish for the native browns obtained? Well, the actual broodstock, first of all, for the rainbows, we had a, a good stock of fish in the reservoir, and again, at spawning time, we'd catch them up in nets, and we also had a waterfall system that when the fish got the urge, the stream that also feeds the hatchery itself feeds a trapping pond, and once the fish decided that it was time to spawn, they'd travel up there, We'd just basically take them out on the day that they were ready and strip. These are the rainbows? Them are the rainbows. And identical also with the brown trout. And what about the timing of all of this? Well, as time went on, the rainbows started to come just after the brown trout. The brown trout would be spawning round about um, October, November. Um, initially, a lot of the rainbow trout that were brought into this country from abroad mainly America uh, initially, there were spring spawning fish. But as we, we, we kept working on these, they slowly, slowly started to start maturing just after the brown trout, round about early December, and we were getting fish when we wanted them rather than them giving them when we didn't want them. I take it that both rainbows and browns would be in the hatchery section of the fish farm at the same time. You wouldn't then have one species following on from the other. Yeah, we would do actually. Yeah, if we could. It depended on what orders were in for how many thousand brown trout you wanted or how many thousand rainbows. So for salmonids, there is no manipulated preparation of the brood stock as there is for coarse fish farming. They're left to their own devices, you check them regularly, and when they're ready, then you deal with them. That's what was happening in my day, and then as time went on, as I started getting into induced spawning coarse fish, we got involved in inducing salmon. 
Now, as far as I was ever concerned, I never induced brown trout or rainbow trout. On a few occasions, I went up to Witcher Well and induced salmon to spawn. The reason being is that we could induce them when we wanted them, basically when it best suited us. Now, I was only involved in that for, for two seasons, but we did have a, a definite result, and I know it is going on now. So as with the coarse fish then, inducing maturation of the gonads and ovaries will be done with a hormonal injection. That's correct, that is, yeah. What about the build-up to having them ready to strip? You've already said that the two sexes are stored in separate holding cages and left for nature to take its course, or at least get them to the point where they could be injected. They were visually inspected for any big parasites, nothing else were done. Fish were looked at every single day, two or three times a day. If there were any slight suspicion of anything, they'd be netted out, they'd be anaesthetised, have a good look at them and take it from there. Anaesthetic to put them out would also presumably be used for the actual stripping procedure too. Yeah, every time a fish is going to be stripped, it's always anaesthetised. Occasionally, if it's absolutely running, you could be dashing across the floor with them on the way to the anaesthetic, there'd be sperm everywhere or eggs everywhere, but generally you would get everything right at the side. The fish is the most important thing of everything. We'd normally use two cocks to one end. The reason we have two cocks to one end is the fact that one might be firing blanks, infertile. We would check the motility of the sperm if we had the time by putting it under a microscope then introducing water to it and you see how motile it was. With the salmon you, you strip the end fish, first of all, into a dry bowl with no water added. You then get your cockfish and you, you release the sperm onto the eggs and when you think you've got enough you then put water straight in and with feathers you turn it all round and over and mixing, 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 mixing and approximately, could be one hour, and the eggs then start taking water in, expanding. Are the various trout species also dealt with in the same manner? Exactly the same process, yeah. And the thinking behind mixing with the feather is what? It's nice and soft, and it's not damaging the egg. So you've got a bowl full of fertilised eggs covered with water. What next? Allowing the eggs then to start swelling. The swelling period could take up to about an hour, an hour and 20 minutes. You then clean them off in regular clean water with no additives at all. And then the eggs are laid out in the trays. This is where, once the eggs have been laid out, they don't want touching at all until you see the eyes in, in the salmonids. These are all salmonids we're talking about at this time. And it can take up to roughly about 40 days. Then once you see the eyes, you used to treat with malachite to stop the fungus forming on the eggs, saprolegnia. Now, you're not allowed to treat with malachite and that's nearly time for hatching and that's when you're keeping all the eggshells that are broken and you let the salmon go over the, the top of the pipe and then down into the troughs. You just let them flow down naturally. Another potential problem which comes to mind is temperature balancing. Salmoni hatcheries are invariably freezing cold places to work because you're always trying to match the outside winter temperature with the temperature inside. 
A few degrees difference probably won't harm things once the eggs are in the trays, but temperature balancing must play some part at the stripping, mixing and swelling stage, and if you have river cage fish being stripped into borehole water, that temperature differential could presumably be a concern. The only problem with boreholes is that the water can come up the borehole and it's not been oxygenated. So obviously there were oxygen measurements being took all the time to see how much saturation the water had. Um, and it may be that they have to pump oxygen in throughout that incubation period and, and even right after as the things are growing into fry. So boreholes offer continuity of feed, constancy of temperature but lack of oxygen. Could be. It's a could be. Yeah. Whereas river water feeds provide the oxygen, but with it the potential for other problems, not the least of which is farm-generated pollution coming in from upstream. You can have other problems. You can have rubbish, leaves. If you get a flood in the stream that supplies it, you could end up with um, water coming down like tea with no milk. As well as potential problems from outside, even though the eggs should not be disturbed, you also run the risk of harm caused by unfertilised eggs, unless these are quickly removed. As soon as the eyes start showing, that's when you can start stirring the eggs up nice and gently, moving them about, and you could have totally blank eggs at the bottom that you've never seen, fungusy eggs, and all of them are removed again every day, all sucked out with a siphon tube. So the healthy eggs develop, hatch and the fryer carry through the high level overflow into long shallow running fry development troughs. Is this when the ongoing feeding regime kicks in and they start to be fed in the trays? They're fed on in trays but it all depends now they've got a big yolk sack as a salmon. But that again is, is dependent on temperature. So what happens then is, is you start to feed very very small minute particles of dried food. I introduced brine shrimp with some of them and, and it actually worked but they're, they're really hard to start feeding any sort of food. It's, you certainly don't get a 100% survival. With the onset of feeding also comes a risk of polluting the water with unused feed. Though the basic design criteria of a flow through system is to keep the unit fresh by replacing unwanted material with a clean well oxygenated input. Well yeah you make sure that the water's flowing in such a way that it actually flows through rather than goes in a circle and leaves a great big heap of sewage in the middle of the tank. But any food that settles there, it can't be left too long before it starts to go putrid. As the fish grow, does any sizing or grading take place? There's a difference again with salmon and coarse fish. When I say salmon, I mean salmonids and coarse fish. In coarse fish you get a lot of bullying, growing fast, some are going fast, brothers and sisters are not, and so on and so forth. But it's more stable in the salmonids rather than the coarse fish. There's not as much cannibalism in the first few weeks, basically. And what about chemical inputs just to help things along? We'd rather rely on the water quality being good, but on occasion you do get fungus infections in salmonids and... Um, Certain chemicals have got to be used to eradicate the problem. What happens next in the process depends on whether you're rearing migratory or non-migratory stockfish. Sticking with tin twistle for now and the trout, what's the next stage in the process? Well, what happens is that once the fish leave the actually building, at my place they were going into two metre tanks, 
which would be there probably for about 12 months. They'd be then transferred into a cage rearing system which floated in the reservoir with a, a quite small mesh side. And then the following year, they'd go into another net with a larger mesh side. Now, the problems that you had in there, you had to have predator nets above the cages to stop our avian friends getting in and trying to get the fish out. You'd have rats swimming out from the shore, nibbling, trying to get at food, smell of food. And once they nibble the net, the fish then decide it's time to go and have a swim around the reservoir. And then the other one that were quite... Um, frequent in summer would be the local yobbos swimming out on a lorry in a tube with sacks on the back pulling the nets up and taking as many as they could carry into bags and off they go to the village you certainly painted a very clear picture there warts and all which should go a long way towards giving a flavour of how a flow through salmonid hatchery and fish farm works on a day to day basis but there is one other thing that also needs to be factored in for the migratory species, which is olfactory imprinting, though this will have no direct effect on how the system itself operates. In a nutshell, before leaving the river of the birth, juvenile salmon imprint the chemical odour or fingerprint of the water so that after maturing at sea they can find their way back. The implication here is that if hatchery reared fish are not allowed to imprint the signature of the river they are intended to repopulate, then they can't be expected to migrate back. That said, imprinting isn't foolproof, otherwise salmon would never recolonise rivers such as the Mersey as they have now, when these become pollution free. It is however, one consideration that salmon farmers rearing for release do need to factor into the calculations. Most fish farming prior to the time when water provision was separated off from the conservation and enforcement wing of the All Water Authorities back in 1989, under the banner of the National Rivers Authority, and more recently the Environment Agency, was based on the type of flow-through system we've just talked about. And with the mandate to clean up and restock Britain's waterways came the need for large additional numbers of coarse fish, which could no longer be netted from existing populations and moved as had previously been the case. These fish now would have to be specifically reared for that purpose. The problem was that suddenly fish farmers were being tasked with developing expertise that had little, if any, pre-existing scientific support. So where exactly did the very successful idea that you was piloting when I joined you come from? It was just after the Toxteth riots, when Mr Hazeltine turned into Liverpool and declared that he was going to clean up Liverpool, the Mersey system and all the rivers that go into it. And at that time, there was many as six or seven or eight bailiffs and perhaps two Land Rover and trailers, which was so costly, it was unbelievable. And you'd be going around from lake to lake to lake, introducing fish. And they said that we now have to start breeding our own. And either luckily or unluckily for me, I got the job. <laughs> they decided that it was going to be at Leyland Fish Farm which is a sewage works, which produced its own gas from the sewage. So that was the eating side of it sorted out, because we, we was all then known as North West Water Authority. So that was the start of it all, and I designed all my own tank systems and breeding regimes. 
there was a, a couple around the country and we'd all start picking brains and all the rest of it, sharing information. That's how it all started. But it wasn't as easy as that, because I know that there was very little, if anything, in the way of pre-existing experience to tap into. You really was, quite literally, flying by the seat of your pants, though if my memory served me well, there was some work being done in other parts of Europe. They were at it in Poland and the Eastern Bloc countries. They were breeding uh, fish, especially carp. Hungary and Poland were very good at it, breeding for food as well as probably stocking rivers or ponds or lakes. A lot, a lot of years before we ever did it. But the information just wasn't there, unless you, you could actually travel there. Um, it was suggested a couple of times that we travel over to these countries and see what they were doing, but... Um, it never happened. And were the people who were working on these projects exchanging information and helping each other out? Or were they playing the cards close to the chest? There was a lot of jealousy and holding on to information. In fact, in my early days, I, I, I was instructed to keep people out of the hatchery itself. Not only just at the door to disinfect the feet, but to disinfect the mind as well. <laughs> Realistically then, it was down to being a well-thought-out case of give it a go, see if it works, and if not, try something different. Quite a few years before that, there was an experiment made at the Warrington headquarters of the Northwest Water Authority breeding carp in enclosed systems, recirculation systems. Initially, it was started by Bob Pritchett, who was one of the fishery officers, and uh, he had an assistant called Chris Newton. And then on occasions, me and Bernie Chapel would go in and, and do some work. And that was our first um, inroads to um, recirculation systems. Except for my own private hobby was fish keeping in recirculation systems. So I dragged up what I'd learnt at Warrington and then expanded on that and redesigned the old systems for Leyland. It was an absolute total success. When I arrived on the scene at Leyland Fish Farm, the spawning of different species of coarse fish hadn't really got underway. It was mainly carp, and in particular koi carp, which were being used to perfect the induced spawning techniques and also to charge up and feed the biological filters, without which a recirculation fish farm can't operate. So let's talk a little bit now about the filters. They were all based on round plastic pan scrubs. Then with the first ones we had hundreds and hundreds of pan scrubs, so we were never short of anything to clean the kettle with. They have a very wide surface area for bacteria to grow on and uh, they, were, they were extremely good. And as time went on, we tested various things with, um, well, a tubular plastic called Flocor, which, had, again, had a wide surface area and that was extremely successful as well. I seem to remember a flat sheet variation which we also tried that, for want of a better way of putting it, looked like corrugated cardboard. I'll tell you what it were, it were corrugated plastic. Double skinned plastic with a corrugation in the middle. Using the same basic idea of providing lots of surface area. Exactly. But I still, uh, I think the most successful of the lot were definitely pan scrubs. With aeration in the filtration system as well. And these pan scrubs were put into large plastic header tanks from a plumber's merchants, placed on the floor underneath the fry holding troughs, which were themselves raised up on metal stands. That's correct. We used to put them in onion sacks. 
probably two or three hundred in each sack and we might have three sacks in 50 gallon tanks and once we got experience with that 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 were fine and they'd be just the most of the stuff then would be checked weekly rather than every other day and things became easier and easier as we went on and you also trialled uv filters yeah that's correct everything went through a, a set of uv filters in the header tank so if there were any potential nasties that uh, were, were being recirculated, it, it definitely knocked them out. As far as we know, they were very successful. So we had these long, narrow plastic troughs around which the rest of the equipment required to circulate and clean the water was constructed. Give us an overview then of the design and components used. The trough sizes were 10 foot, 2 foot by 1, with a screen, a screen at the end so if no fish could uh, escape. That overflowed then into what was originally submarine battery boxes made out of fibreglass. Then were full of limestone chippings to balance the pH. Worked absolutely fantastic as a filter and as a pH balance. That overflowed then into a 50 gallon tank with the pan scrub media in. And then that was pumped up to the edit tank through a UV filter and that was the complete cycle. And the final header tank was just that, set above the top end of the trough, allowing the water to fall back in, giving it added oxygenation. Yeah, it, that was obviously coming in and splashing at one end, which is more um, oxygenation. Obviously, with the recirculation set up, there has to be constant water movement around the system, which means that the fry in the main holding trough are going to experience some sort of current. What would be the benefits of this, and if you can, give us some idea about the flow rates. What we were doing, the flow rates were governed by the size of the fry and it were basically suck it and see. As the fish got stronger, as they started feeding, we would then turn up the flow and basically exercising the fish to create muscle ready for when they were actually going out in the ponds. What about the preparation for the troughs for receiving the fry, such as advanced filling for chlorine evaporation, plus a few larger temporary fish to help kickstart the biofilters? Well, the chlorine, it'd be gone in 24 to 48 hours. That'd be recirculating with aeration as well. And then into one of the smaller tanks, we'd introduce a few small carp, which would then continue to feed the, the media that's in, prior to putting the fry in. And obviously, any fish that would put in uh, initially would then be took out and put back into their own tanks. It is quite important to do this. You can't simply put a large number of fish into a small volume of water and expect them to survive because biofilters take time to get up to full operational capacity. For the benefit of those that don't know, biofilters cultivate two important species of bacteria to operate the nitrogen cycle of converting toxic ammonia into relatively harmless nitrate. These are nitromonas, which oxidizes ammonia to nitrite, and nitrobacter, which then oxidizes the nitrite into nitrate. The other important chemical parameter here is pH, which controls the balance between ammonia and ammonium. At low pH, more ammonia converts to ammonium, and it's this that is particularly toxic to fish, hence the important role played by the limestone chippings. What we got around that, what we could do is you can put a bit of soil in, out of a garden, to introduce the bacteria. As we know, soil's got a, a quite a big mixture of the correct bacteria to get the filter working up and working without great big rises in ammonia and all that kind of thing. And lots of aeration 
and it spreads quite quick. Again, you're monitoring daily, and then as things start settling down, you, you'll still keep you know monitoring ammonia's all the time. And when these troughs and filters are all up and running, it's a case then of going out and getting some suitable brood stock. To catch the brood stock, we can approach anglers. We'd have specialist anglers looking for certain fish for us. They'd give us a ring if they had a, a keep net full. The fishery staff would also be netting fish from various places and, and that would come on at certain times of the year. So we'd ask them to say, if you get any chub, if you get any roach, if you get any carp, give us a ring, we can be there in an hour. And that's what used to happen. Then we'd get them straight back into the hatchery. We might uh, put them through a little dip, a disinfectant dip, and inspect them, males, females, anything that were ripe, we'd get them straight away injected with pituitary. And in the next couple of days, it's cross your fingers and hope that we've got them. That's on, on a wild fish situation. There were also resident broodstock fish held within the hatchery unit itself. So what was the thinking behind that? Well, it was just a case of taming them. That's what we, we actually did. We, we'd start taming them, introducing ourselves to them, if you will. It might sound stupid, but we'd start feeding them. We might take them on in late winter and then marry that with the light and temperature raising and bring it on like that. And then as far as barbel were concerned, we took fish in and they, we got them totally tame. They were put into a, a, an enclosed system inside with a roof on and whatever the day length was when we took them in we would match that. They fitted timers on the tanks and lights on the tanks and then we'd start adjusting the light, adjusting the temperature and we, we got it to a, a, a fine art in the end. We, we would actually get ovulations in the females without injection purely by using heat and light every third to fourth week. And the gonadotropin, where this was needed to get a result, is dried carp pituitary gland which you can buy in, ground up using a mortar and pestle with water added, then injected into fish that are almost ready to go, which should then be ready the next day. That's correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you're into the stripping procedure, which is... We'd bring the, the fish into the hatchery, We'd strip the females first and then introduce the males after. We'd, we'd strip them. What was you stripping them into? Well, we used washing up bowls. Had to be completely dry. Then we'd, we'd uh, start the procedure off then where we, uh, we'd put the water in, mixing it with the feather where the eggs then swell up. That would go on for about 45 to 60 minutes. And then just prior to them going into the zoog jars, we'd um, introduce a little bit of tannin, stir it up, wash it off to see if the eggs have freed themselves. And if they were still sticky, we'd then do them another wash with the tannin, watching all the time, and then introduce them then to the zoog jars. And prior to using tannin to try to degum the eggs, which in coarse fish are naturally very sticky anyway to attach to weeds and stones, unlike salmonids which are individually free, I believe you started off by using milk. Yeah, in the early days in Warrington we, we used um, UHT milk, which absorbed the stickiness. It definitely worked. I think that tannin probably worked a little bit better. but. Um... And this is the point where they were put into the zoo jars to incubate. So perhaps you'd better explain just exactly what a zoog jar is. 
The first ones we ever did were made out of two litre pot bottles. They need movement all the time, they want water coming over all the time. Coarse fish eggs are extremely robust and the more they're moving, they're getting rid of stickiness all the time, less fungus attacking them. This changed the purpose-made open-top glass loop jars with narrow necks to fit control taps to regulate the flow. So where did these come from? As time went on, I invented my own zoo jars, which were conical, custom-built things, which worked absolutely fantastic. There is actually an old VHS video on the website of us doing all this and more in the fishery sciences folder, showing how you'd fitted high-level overflows to them, through which the fry would escape into the main holding troughs. They did, they did, and they loved it. It was just like coming off the eyeboard. Very controllable and that's where they stayed then in, until they started to hatch which was normally between say, three days and seven or eight days depending on what species that we were doing and then as they started to hatch that's when all the cleaning up has got to be constantly done three four five six times a day removing all the eggshells watching your water flow conditions then i suppose it was a case of letting them absorb the yolk sac before the early feeding could start yeah, when the yolk sac uh, had been absorbed, the early feeding start, and you've got to be very careful at that time because you don't want to put too much food in that's not going to get eaten, which can cause disease and all the rest of it. So it's a case of watching, watching, watching all the time. And the first feed we used to do 99 times out of 100 is uh, Artemia, which is a brine shrimp. And then, you know, you get another about 10 days on, we'd start introducing freeze-dried... Um, tube effects and then we grind up tropical fish flake and have quite a few different things going all the time. For me brine shrimp are fascinating little things. They came in tins as dried eggs which we would have to rehydrate then hatch. Yeah we'd run them about 80 degrees Fahrenheit and they'd normally hatch overnight free swimming as soon as they hatch and um, you could actually tell when, when the, the, the fry were feeding because you could see the artemia go in the mouth and you could follow it all through the fish's gut coming out at the back end in the same day. So it was always great to see it. You knew then that they were getting, getting fed and uh, feeding strong. And what about the feeding frequency? A lot of suck it and see that to that question. They certainly got fed twice a day, if not three times a day. But the recirculation system also worked in as much as the brine shrimp that would go out at the, uh, at the end where the screen was would then get recycled all the way around the system, beat the UV and come back in at the other end. So all this panicking about feed, 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 you had to also work out that they were self-feeding basically. Then later, as they got onto ground-up flake feed and started putting on some weight, we also put food onto the clockwork feeders so that bits kept dropping in at graduated intervals after we'd gone home. When we had the fry there, we would keep the, the lights on 24 hours a day. We used the auto feeders at night to feed the mixed dried food. And once feeding had been underway for a few weeks, it was time to go looking for the shooters. That's right. So after about a fortnight, 10 days to a fortnight, you start looking for larger fish that are developing quicker than the rest. We'd call them shooters. Basically, they were very, very hard-feeding bullies. They grew like wildfire. You could actually see them going round the tank and seeing which young fish would fit in the mouth. 
and if they couldn't just quite get it in the mouth they'd spit that one out and then go on to the next until they found one that would fit. Some people used to like to pull them out and put them in a separate tank and perhaps grow them on to hopefully they've got a fast growing fish. But uh, nothing that really that we got involved in because all our fish were for restocking rather than going into specimen lakes or, or anything like that so it didn't really bother us. I remember one time we had a glut of dace eggs, so you let me experiment to see if raising the incubation temperature could speed the process up, which it did, but at the cost of producing fry that could hardly break free from their eggs. So what leeway in terms of temperature and timing are we talking about under normal conditions? We know that in May time, when fish are hatching out, you've got high extremes of temperature, you've got very low temperatures, you can have frost in May, and you can have temperatures up to 16, 17 degrees in the daytime. So the fish are so hardy in combating the two extremes. There we go. Talking about it now, in some ways it seems like it was only yesterday when all of this was going on. And always it was done under the self-imposed pressure of wanting to succeed, but never actually knowing in those earliest days to what extent it actually would. Though I have to say that with hindsight, I think we did a bloody good job. Moving back to present, recirculation fish farming is now very much better understood, with a number of colleges now actually teaching the subject, which is a far cry from the mid-1980s. And now, sadly, the Environment Agency has turned its back on the subject altogether, preferring to buy in from commercial units, allowing all that hard work, all that knowledge and all that experience to be lost forever. (laughs) 